as we open your word. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 5. We're coming to the end of chapter 5. I'm uh, going to pick things up this morning. Matthew 5, verse 43. Dirk Willems was born in Aspirin Gelders, a province in the Netherlands in the 16th century. He, he would have been baptized as an infant in the Catholic Church, as was the norm in his area in that uh, period of history. Um, but as a young man, he came to the conviction that what Scripture taught, what Jesus wanted, was that men and women, young and old, would choose baptism upon the confession of their own faith. That is, that baptism wouldn't be something done to them as infants, but, but upon their own confession of faith, their own recognition of their deep need of God's grace and their own faith in Jesus as their hope for salvation, that they would be baptized. And so as a young man in Rotterdam, uh, Dirk Willems was rebaptized. He became an Anabaptist. Anabaptist means rebaptized. It was a, a derogatory term put on the radical reformers who chose believers' baptism in the uh, Protestant Reformation, the Radical Reformation. Uh, his new understanding of baptism, his new understanding of what it meant to live as a disciple of Jesus, uh, along with the fact that a number of other people were baptized in his home, led to his arrest in Aspirin. Uh, Gelders, 1569. He was held prisoner in a palace that had been turned into a prison, but he managed to escape by crawling down a rope made out of rags that were knotted together. He landed on, on the frozen moat. It was winter, and he took off running. A guard saw him and began his pursuit. Uh, Willems ran across the Holdegat Pond on, on his escape, and he managed to get across the thin ice, but as he crossed it, he heard his pursuer fall through. He heard him screaming for help, his desperation as he struggled in the icy waters. And so Dirk Willems stopped. He turned around and he went back. And he helped rescue his pursuer. That man apparently wanted to see Dirk freed, but the magistrate of the city would not allow it. And so Dirk was taken back into custody and on May 16, 1569, he was sentenced to death and burned at the stake. We come this morning to some incredibly hard words on the lips of Jesus. Here's what we'll read soon. Jesus will say, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Really, Jesus? Love our enemies? Pray for those who persecute us. Why? How? How, Jesus? Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is prefaced by the announcement of good news. Uh, the good news that in His coming, a whole new order is breaking into this world. The future is invading the present. That, that heaven is invading earth. I have been contending through this series that when the good news breaks into a person's life, when it takes whole root in, in a person's heart, something happens. And that something that happens is described by Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount. That something that happens is the creation of a new kind of humanity, gospelized humanity. Men and women, young and old, who begin to exhibit 
new characteristics, who, who live for a new purpose, who live with new ambitions, who begin to exhibit new behaviors. In this sermon, Jesus is not giving us a new law, a new set of rules. He's not giving us the old law cranked up on steroids. No, Jesus is painting a picture of gospelized humanity. He is painting a picture of what humanity becomes when the power of the gospel moves in us, when the gospel takes root, when the Spirit of God, the living God, is having His way in us. We have been, over the last two months or so, been making our way through the last part of Matthew 5. It it began with Jesus saying that He had come not to abolish the law, not not to junk it, not to get rid of it, but to fulfill it. Jesus fulfills the law in a variety of ways. One of the ways Jesus fulfills the law is by helping us to understand the heart of God, to understand God's desire, God's design from the very beginning. Jesus explains the law by providing us six illustrations, if you will, six paragraphs that follow that word about, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We've been walking through those six uh, paragraphs. We come to the sixth and final one this morning. Those six paragraphs show us that Jesus is explaining the law. He's not getting rid of it. He's not changing it. He's not giving us a new law. He's illustrating what the gospel produces in us and showing us God's desire, God's design, this new kind of humanity, gospelized humanity. Now, with all that in mind, we need to remember that there's a danger we face. That danger is that we can can miss the point by getting lost in the details. And so there's a few things I said we need to remember that that what Jesus is teaching here is, is not only about the letter of the law, but the Spirit that it's not only about the externals, but it's about what's going on in our head and in our hearts, that it's not just negative, the things we're not to do, but positively how we are to live, how, what we are to do. And it's not, it's not actually oppressive, it's freeing, it, it's leading us into the life we were created to live. And, and this is not an end in itself, this is a means for us to grow in intimacy with our Heavenly Father who loves us. Last Sunday, we looked at a passage, the fifth illustration, that, that makes the point that the gospelized, those in whom the gospel has taken root, don't try and get even. That retaliation and revenge have no place in the life of disciples of Jesus. Rather, that those in whom the gospel has taken root, that when the Spirit is having His way in us, that we do not respond in kind. That is, when, when we are insulted, we are prepared to bear another insult. When we are sued, we will give away more than is asked for. That when we are inconvenienced, we will serve, we will do good. The gospelized respond in an utterly countercultural way because of the gospel, because of the gospel's power and the Spirit at work in us. If you were here, you know that that last week, that was a hard word from Jesus. And I just want to say to you now, it doesn't get easier today. It's another hard word. But, but Jesus doesn't just say this to us. Jesus is present with us at work in us. It's His power that produces this transformation. If you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
He causes His sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want to do four things with you in the time that we have remaining together this morning. First, I want to unpack with you some of the important background information about what was being taught, about what it is they have heard. Jesus said, you have heard it said. So what was it they had heard said? We'll look at that first. Secondly, I want to explore with you what Jesus did say, what Jesus taught, and what He didn't say. Thirdly, I want to reflect with you on what I have called simply the way of the world, how the world lives in light of this, those who are not gospelized. And fourth, I want to respond to the question, what, what will this look like? How, how do we do this? What does this look like in our lives? So first, what was being taught? What was it that Jesus' listeners had heard? Jesus begins verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That is no doubt what they had heard. It, it was what they were being taught, but What we need to understand is that it is, in fact, a gross perversion of the law in a number of ways. First, we look at the the, the first part of what they heard, love your neighbor. That much is true. That was in the law. But but remember what the the religious leaders were doing. They were were narrowing the restrictions and and widening the permissions. They They were skewing the law in such a way as to make it more approachable, less demanding. And so here we see that they have, when it comes to the law to love your neighbor, they've actually omitted something, and that is the standard of that love that was included in the law. That that law, that command is found in Leviticus 19, and we are told to love your neighbor as yourself. Don't, don't just love them a little, right? This is an important standard of love. We are to love them as we love ourselves. We are to care for our enemy as we care, or care for our neighbor as we care for ourselves. They've omitted the standard. But second, and this is, this is more egregious, they've added something. Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Can anyone find that verse? Like, they have added something that's not in the Old Testament. They have added to the law, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's not there. You will find it nowhere. Now, it is important for me to note this, that the theme of God's hatred of evil is present in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 5, we read this, The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. The reality is that God is holy and that God will eventually bring evil to the end. He will pass His judgment. That is true. But in the meantime, God is a God of love and God is patient. And God nowhere commands His people. God nowhere commands us to hate our enemies. another matter that we need to note too as we think about what they have heard, what has been said, what they've been taught, and that concerns the identity of their neighbor. They're called to love their neighbor, so who is their neighbor? Even though they acknowledge the command to love their neighbor, they still had to determine who that person was, who, who is my neighbor. And I want you to think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's what that's about. Jesus 
is in dialogue with a teacher of the law who says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know, how do you read the law? He says, love God and love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus says, good. And in, order, in, in an attempt to justify himself, the teacher says, well, who is my neighbor? Who, who is my neighbor? He was, we, we understand that question. He, he's, he's trying to figure out who he doesn't have to love. Right? I got to love my neighbor. I got that. But who, where's the line? Where, 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 can I, where do I encounter people that I don't have to love? That's the point. And, and Jesus, in response, tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, in which the hero of the story is a hated foreigner, a Samaritan, a non-Jew. See, that teacher of the law and the Jews in general had come to the conclusion that their neighbor, their neighbor was just fellow Jews. It was just their people. And other people on the outside, those were their enemies. And, and they, they had interpreted God's law somehow, twisted it to say, we just got to love our fellow Jews and we hate everyone else. John Stott writes this, the reasoning is rational enough to convince those who wanted to be convinced and to confirm them in their own racial prejudice. But Jesus, of course, is clear. He would have none of that. The hero of the story is a Samaritan, a foreigner, who is the only one in the story who, who faithfully loves his neighbor. And, and for him, it's, it's a hated Jew. Coming to the conclusion that one could legitimately exclude some when it came to defining one's neighbors, that loving your neighbor meant simply loving your own people, f- falls apart. Not only in light of what Jesus says, but, but even in, in, in closely reading the Old Testament. Listen to what we read elsewhere in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, the same chapter of that law, love your neighbor as yourself. We read this, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Elsewhere in Leviticus, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I, the Lord, am your God. Not only that, but there are commands that God gives specifically in the law about how they are to conduct themselves towards their enemies. uh, Sorry, Exodus 23, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. In the book of Proverbs, we read this. Paul quotes this in Romans 12, but this is from Proverbs 25. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Far from rightly understanding God's law, the religious leaders had perverted it. They had added this phrase, but hate your enemies, and they had wrongly narrowed the definition of who their neighbors were to just their own people. You see, God's intention from the beginning was that through His people, all the nations on the earth would be blessed. That was His promise to Abram. That that is God's desire, that, that through His people and now through the church, all nations, all peoples would be blessed. All would come to know the love and the grace of God. Who is my neighbor? My neighbor is whoever happens to be in front of me in need. Biblically, there is never a reason to exclude, to to not love. So that's what they had heard. That's what was being taught in Jesus' day. Let's, let's turn secondly now to what Jesus taught, what Jesus says, and what He 
doesn't say. In verse 44, Jesus says this, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Remember, Jesus is not providing a new law. He's not providing a new set of rules. He is painting a picture of gospelized humanity, of of life in His kingdom. What He is saying here is that when the gospel takes root in our hearts, when the Spirit of God is having His way in us, love begins to show up in, in unexpected places. This strange love for enemies. When an enemy is seeking to harm you, when an enemy is seeking to harm me, the gospelized seek the good of that enemy. When an enemy calls down curses upon you, when an enemy calls down curses upon me, the gospelized retaliate by calling down heaven's blessings upon that enemy. There's this love for enemy that comes out of the lives of those who are gospelized. That's what Jesus is saying. And we're left saying, really, Jesus? Love our enemies? Pray for those who persecute us? How? Why? Before I offer an answer to that question, there's a couple things I want to speak to. First is this, that I want you to note that at this point, Jesus isn't remotely politically correct. He, he, he calls us to love our enemies. He, he calls them our enemies. He, he he does not say that we shouldn't call them our enemies. In fact, he, he doesn't say that we should merely see them as victims of, of wounds in their own lives, that they had no, not really a choice, that this is just kind of who they've become because they've been hurt, though it's true that hurt people hurt people. But Jesus doesn't give them an excuse. He, he doesn't tell us, stop thinking of them as your enemies. He calls them our enemies. Thus, Jesus is calling us to be honest about that fact. To be honest about the fact that there are people in this world who hate us, who want to harm us, who speak curses over us. And Jesus calls us to be honest about that fact. He calls us to be honest about the reality of what we face. And I would suggest that Jesus invites us to be honest about the fact that that our natural inclination in the face of the evil we experience from enemies is, is hatred. That's, that's, that's our natural response in the face of that. And see, Jesus calls them our enemies. We, we don't have to fake it. We don't have to pretend it's not so. We can be honest about what we feel towards those who, who are perpetrators, those who hurt us. Listen to these words. These are prayers that we find in Scripture in the book of Psalms, in precatory Psalms they're called. Psalm 10, break the arm of the wicked man. Psalm 58, break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of these lions. Eugene Peterson in his book, Answering God, a book on the Psalms, he writes this, it is easy to be honest before God with our hallelujahs. It is somewhat more difficult to be honest in our hurts. It is nearly impossible to be honest before God in the dark emotions of our hate. So we commonly suppress our negative emotions, or when we do express them, we do it far from the presence or what we think is the presence of God, ashamed and embarrassed to be seen in these curse-stained bib overalls. 
But when we pray the Psalms, these classic prayers of God's people, we find that will not do. We must pray who we actually are, not who we think we should be. In prayer, all is not sweetness and light. The way of prayer is not to cover our unlovely emotions so that they will appear respectable, but to expose them so that they can be enlisted in the work of the kingdom. We don't have to hide those from God. Jesus acknowledges that we have enemies. And we can be honest about what we feel in the face of what we experience at their hands. And in the face of evil, we need to understand, as I already mentioned, that that God in His holiness hates evil. God God hates two, and, and one day God will finally come, and He will judge all that is evil, all those who persist in their rejection of Him. God, too, hates evil. But second, I want you to note something else. Something, something else that Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, like your enemies. That's good, because that's hard. That's impossible. He, he doesn't say, feel warmly towards them. He, he, he doesn't even say, feel love to your enemies. He says, love your enemies. I, I want to, uh, there, there are four different Greek words that are translated love. The first is storge. Storge is uh, love of family. The love between siblings or uh, from siblings to parents. Parents, it, it's, it's love in the context of family. Deep, intimate love. The second uh, verb for love is eros, from which we get erotic. It, it speaks of a uh, love of passion where, where you are intoxicated with, with beauty, sexual love. Third is phileo. It, it is the love of friendship, of mutual respect. It, it, it is brotherly love. And the fourth Greek word for love is the love agape. Agape is the love of decision. Agape emerges out of a decision of the will. Agape is the love that God has for us. God has chosen to love us. Apart from, it's not because it's not we're beautiful, it's, not, it's, not, it's, it's a choice. God has chosen to love us, to agape us. And it is significant here that, that Jesus uses that word. He calls us to agape our enemies. Agape. Make a decision of your will. To love them with a love that is like God's love for us. Why? Why, Jesus? Why are we to love our enemies like this? Well, if we read on in our text, we, we see why. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Whoa, you might say. Is Jesus, did He just move the goalposts? Is Jesus saying that we become children of God by loving our enemies? Is that, is that what He says? That, that, this, that, that if we get this wrong, we might find ourselves on the outside? Like that, that this is how we become a Christian, a child of God, is to love our enemies? Is that what Jesus is saying? I want to remind you again that Jesus here is describing our lives when the gospel takes root in our hearts. And the Spirit of God indwells us and is having His way in us. See, 
We, we aren't called to love our enemies in order that we might become children of God. We are called to love our enemies because we are the children of God. And as God's children, we are to resemble God. We're to look like God, our Father, who, who loved us when we were His enemies. And so because we are His sons and because we are His daughters, we, we are to reflect His likeness. And so we, we, we're, we're called to love our enemies so that we resemble our Father. Look at what Jesus says next. He, that is God, causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is describing how God loves this scandalous, indiscriminate love of the Father. The Father loves both the good and the evil, the righteous and the unrighteous. God loves enemies. God loves scandalously, indiscriminately. He shows His goodness and His love and His care on all of humanity. And so, as those who are His children, as those who are to look like Him, we are to love like Him, scandalously. This strange love for even enemies, the good and the evil. And that leads us to the third thing I wanted to do, which is to look at the way of the world. Look, look at what Jesus says in verse 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Here's the point Jesus is making. Even sinners love their own people. Most of them. Even people who, who, who don't know Jesus. The, the, the ungospelized. People who don't have the Spirit of God. They love their own people. So if that's all we're doing, we look no different. How are we living out this gospelized humanity? We're, we're, we're missing something. John Stott writes this, fallen man is not incapable of loving. The doctrine of total depravity does not mean, has never meant, that original sin has rendered men incapable of doing anything good at all, but rather that every good they do is to some degree tainted by evil. Lost people can love, and they do. They love their own people. Stott goes on to write this, but all human love, even the highest, the noblest, and the best, is contaminated to some degree by the impurities of self-interest. We Christians are specifically called to love our enemies, in which love there is not self-interest. And this is impossible without the supernatural grace of God. What Jesus calls us to do here is not something that you or I are capable of doing by mustering up our own strength. This is a supernatural love that is empowered by the Spirit of God living in us, that it is produced in us when we hear and believe the good news, the grace and love of Jesus. The Gospel takes root and, and we begin to, to love people that we would never think we could love. I've been contending that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus painting a picture of gospelized humanity. Our lives are to look different than the lives of those 
on the outside those who don't know Jesus. And so if we only love our own people, we are not, we're not looking any different than those who don't know Jesus. We're not looking any different than the non-redeemed around us. But if we're gospelized, then we're different. We are peculiar. We reflect the likeness of our Father. We love like He loves. We love scandalously, indiscriminately. And that leads us to the final verse of our text, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is not talking about sinless perfection. The Sermon on the Mount, let me remind you, begins with that beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their utter spiritual poverty, their, their bankruptcy, that they come with empty hands and empty pockets in desperate need of God's grace. Theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, who mourn over sin, their own sin and the sin of the world. They will be comforted. Blessed are those, not who are righteous, but who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who recognize their unrighteousness and long for, for all things to be set right. This is not about sinless perfection. This is about looking like our Father in heaven. We are His children. We are to exhibit His likeness. Like father, like son, like father, like daughter. We are to look like Him. We are to love like Him. That leads us to the fourth thing I wanted to do, the question, what will this look like? What will this look like for you and for me to love like God, to love our enemies? First, it means showing our enemies love through Simple deeds, again, not, not deeds that are simply done, but just through deeds of goodness. In Luke's version of this sermon, he says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Paul, I already quoted, quoting Proverbs, Romans 12, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. John Macarius was a Presbyterian missionary living in Lebanon, he and his wife, he was serving for many years as the president of a Bible college in the, the capital city of Beirut. And at a point in time where violence in the city of Beirut and Lebanon more generally was on the rise, most of the people living in their apartment building were evacuated, but John and his wife decided to stay. One particular day, they heard enemy soldiers enter into the building, and those soldiers began going apartment to apartment, bursting down the door, destroying apartments where they found people, they beat them. John and his wife heard this, and they quickly began to scramble. They prepared coffee, they found the cakes and cookies, anything they had for snacks, set it out on their table. And when they heard the soldiers coming to their door, John beat them to the door, he opened it, and he said, welcome, please come in. Have some coffee. Have something to drink. You must be very tired. The soldiers were completely astonished. They, they didn't know what to do. They came in. They drank some coffee. And they left the building. They didn't harm any other apartments or any other people. Do good to those who hate you. A second story... Uh, a harder story to hear, true story. A young woman, a young teenage girl, was attacked and raped and murdered. Her parents were devastated. 
and outraged. The young man who had killed their daughter was caught. He was tried and convicted, sentenced to life in prison. At first, this couple was just utterly consumed by bitterness and anger. But soon they realized that that anger and bitterness was destroying them. So they concluded as as Christians, they knew that the way to wholeness was the way of forgiveness. And so they decided to go to the prison where that young man was held and that they would visit him and they would express to him that they were choosing to forgive him as an act of faith. They, they went once, they, they realized they had to go again and again and again and express that over and over and over again. That young man was stunned. No one had ever said anything like that to him before, and certainly he didn't expect that from these people. But, but acting in love, doing this hard thing over time began to melt the anger and the bitterness in the hearts of this couple. They knew what the Scripture said about feeding your enemies, and so they began to, they, they continued to visit and, and began bringing cookies and magazines and clothing for this young man. F- finally, finally he, he asked them, why are you doing this? And they said, because the Father loves you. And He calls us to love you too. That night, that young man gave his life to Jesus. He became a disciple of Jesus. He began getting involved in prison ministry. And this couple continued to visit him. And they had discovered that he had never, never known parental love. He hadn't grown up in a family. And so a day came where they actually came and they made a proposal to him that they adopt him as their son. Love your enemies. With this scandalous, strange kind of love, the love of God. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you, Jesus says. There is a second way that we can love our enemies. We, we are called to pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this, This is the supreme command. Through this medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, we stand by their side, and we plead for that enemy before God. We, we do vicariously for our enemies what they cannot do for themselves. We, we bring them before Jesus and we plead for them. We pray for them that God would open their blind eyes, that God would soften their hard hearts, that God would bring them to a place of repentance and faith, that God would redeem them by His love. We do for them what they cannot do for themselves. We pray for those who persecute us. Is this not what God in Christ has done for us? Has not God in Christ loved us like this? Scripture tells us that when we were His enemies, Christ died for us. He suffered 
in our place. He suffered agonizing pain. He endured it out of love for us. And as He was being nailed to that cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. He did this because of His scandalous love for His enemies. He did this that we might be saved, that we might be changed from enemies into friends, from enemies of His kingdom into subjects of His kingdom, who would by His grace and by His power at work in us would grow to be men and women, young and old, who look like Him and who love like Him. Let's pray. Jesus, these are such hard words. And we know that we are incapable of living this out apart from You. Apart from the good news of Your love and Your grace. Apart from the power of Your Spirit in us, Lord Jesus. And so we pray, I invite You, Holy Spirit, to move in us. Work in us. Shape us to be men and women, young and old, who, who would love our enemies. Who would be honest about the fact that they are our enemies. To be honest about the fact of what's going on in our hearts, but Lord, that you would move us to that place where we would make the decision of the will to love. Because you have, you have done that for us. You have loved us like that. And so, Lord, produce in us, your people, a scandalous love, a strange love for enemies, that we would look different than those around us who do not know you, Lord, that we would look like you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We are going to.